The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. <laughs> Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show, presented by the Big Lead. Here is the plan for today. The entree interview with the Big Ten Network's Mike Hall, a guy I've known for a long time, a guy I like, a nice guy. And we actually had a really good conversation. And I'm not just saying that because we're on friendly terms. We talked about the initial release of the college football playoff committee's rankings, which happened last night. We dove into the opportunities that Big Ten Network presents. We talked about his journey. We did a little dream job, got under the hood, poked around in there. And we talked about a lot of inside baseball stuff that any media nerd who's listening to this has come to expect. He was awesome. We're going to get to that. I'm not going to waste a lot of your time. I want to zip around the homepage of the biglead.com website right now, give you my one word thought on each story that's dominating sports right now in a little segment called One Word. Aaron Rodgers, liar. Odell Beckham, unhappy. Lakers, old. Atlanta Braves, teamwork. Kelvin Ridley, self-care. NFL-themed slot machines, pathetic. Patrick Mahomes, worried. Zion Williamson, large. Peyton Manning eating chicken on air. Dynamite. Jameis Winston. Underrated. Steve Levy. Pro. Deshaun Watson. Purgatory. Pet monkeys. Risky. And as we welcome in Mike Hall of the Big Ten Network into the podcast, I wanted to get your reaction to the initial college football playoff rankings reveal. There are three Big Ten teams in the top seven, led by a shocking Michigan State team at number three. And we have all this ancillary content of reacting to that and trying to have arguments and win arguments about who is most deserving when there's still 40% of the season coming. How important do you think 
anything that we saw was last night for either the teams in the Big Ten or a team like Cincinnati? Nothing. I think nothing. I mean, I could we could spend this whole podcast on the playoff committee and I can give you my opinions. I'll be honest, I have sort of reached a hilltop where I'm past the point of exhaustion for like four or five years. I felt like screaming into the wilderness and no one was listening. And so I've sort of just for my own sanity brought it down inside my head. But I mean, there's a few things that are there. First off, it's humans. There's always going to be something that someone's going to be upset about. So that is my safety blanket that I throw towards the committee and understanding like we're all human, no matter what any of us do, there'd be something that would some get someone upset. However, uh, um, there's a couple things that drive me crazy. One is their weekly release. It's insane. All it does is make people angry and make ratings for ESPN. I get why ESPN does it. It gets some ratings, but it makes people angry and it infuriates people. And it puts the people on the selection committee in a terrible position because they have to deal with six weeks of people being furious and it dominates the conversation. And I hate it. It's unnecessary. The college basketball committee does one. Now they do an early one, like a month before, which is fine, I guess. But like, they really only do one. And there's only one that matters. And I wish college football would do that because all it does is anger people. There's no criteria that they care about that they're consistent with. There are so many people who rely on the dreaded eye test, which is the worst phrase in all of sports because... It doesn't, you don't have to do anything. It doesn't matter. You can say Alabama lost, but we'll put them at number two. And then if they lose again, you could say, yeah, but we just think they're good. And they'll put them at four. And then if they lose again, yeah, but you know, on a neutral site, who would you rather take? And it's like, that can't, it has to be on facts. It has to be on things that happen. It has to be on your resume. If they just said it's only on your resume, couple things one you would get rid of some of the confusion and frustration two it would force teams to schedule great in the non-conference which benefits everybody all of the fans all of the tv networks the players the only people who may not benefit would be the head coaches who instead of being eight and four would be seven and five or ten you know like they would have a likely more loss or two but everything else would be great everyone else would have added losses and these conversations would be more fact-based instead of just eh, we think ohio state's just better than cincinnati yeah and absolutely you're exactly right when it comes to there's an equal opportunity for everybody to be upset because i can tell you michigan state at three now i don't think it means anything because i don't think they're going to go into columbus and win and if they do well then that changes the entire trajectory of the season that might be enough to clinch it right there barring disaster but yes last night i'm wondering alabama too and seeing that loss in the loss column and i think my problem with alabama and how they're treated by the committee is well then why play the games i don't argue that they're one of the four best teams in college football each and every year but you can kind of say the same that it's always going to be Alabama outside of this year. It's always going to be Clemson. It's always going to be Ohio state. So let's skip the step of playing the actual games. Look at the recruiting rankings, look at the Heisman trophy contenders or finalists and say, look on any given day, this is the best team in college football. To me, what makes 
the sport so special and has always made it so special is that it's a really small gate for teams to enter in. And I don't think that there's any justification for Alabama to lose two games in a season, let alone for the conversation to be, yeah, they might be able to lose to Georgia in the SEC title game and still make it in because if that's the bar, they're never going to miss the playoffs. Right. And that's, I mean, you said a couple things that are really smart. One earlier, you said 40% of the season's left. Like, what are we doing? That's why there shouldn't be these releases. Imagine if political results were called with 60% of results, you know, like that only happens in massive blowouts. But the other thing is, Kyle, you're a baseball fan. I'm a baseball fan. Three weeks ago, if you would have said to me, yeah, but the Braves, they only won 80 some games. Who's going to win on a neutral field, them or Houston? Like, you're never going to pick them. They weren't going to win any series on paper without their best player, one of the five best players, you know, in the country in terms of that sport. Like, that's what sports is. You have to play the game. Of course, Alabama and Ohio State are almost always on paper going to be the best teams because they almost always get the best recruits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what sports is. One year, if one of those guys doesn't make it, it's okay. That means that year they didn't play as well as they could have. Like, that's not, it, it drives me crazy when results are secondary to what somebody thinks because they're smarter. You know, I worked with Jerry DiNardo for a long time and he, he's for a long time said something about GMs, ADs and coaches. They all want to win, but what they really want is to win and be called a genius. I think the idea is, okay, if I can, you know, win, but I call, I put this guy in this position. I mean, it's just ego, I think is the, is the idea, but no, no, I'm going to use a, a different analytic that nobody else thought of. And that made me smarter than you. I'm going to, you know, sometimes like the smart thing is just to run the ball. If you have a great running back, just run it, let him go. But too many people want to be proven smart. And I think that's what happens with media members and with people on the committee is instead of just saying like, Hey, this wasn't team X's year. They're better on paper maybe, but they lost. So somebody else gets it. Although I will say you, you, you reminded me of something else that I think when it comes to these polls, which is, when I was at ESPN, Reese Davis told me something that I thought was brilliant and I never thought of before. And I can't unthink of it because it's so smart, which is it's okay to think Michigan state, just for argument's sake is number one in the country today. And if they win next week to not think they're number one in the country, that doesn't mean they fell. It means you had an extra week worth of information. Maybe one of the teams they beat lost, maybe two teams they beat lost maybe somebody else who was number two had a better win this week it's okay to be fluid to say you can be seven this week one this week two this week because the only one that really matters is the very end and as long as voters understand that they're not dumb they're not hypocritical they're just saying at six weeks this is what i thought i had more information at nine weeks this is where we are i had more information at 12 weeks this is where we are like that's that's okay because you had more information and you used it. Yeah. It, the whole system was kind of put in place to, you know, not be so reliant on the polls coming into the season and getting an accurate snapshot of the season. Like I said, 60 or 70% in, but the polls still play a huge factor. The conversation right. over Cincinnati. Yes. That win at Notre Dame was fantastic, but had Cincinnati come into this year unranked, would they be as high as they are in these rankings? I'm not 100% sure. 
it kind of feels like we've always been searching for a perfect solution. It's not there. I think, right. that, I think that this is pretty darn good, but largely it's good because at the end of the year, there's usually only one real debate. One right. team gets screwed usually. Sometimes it's Ohio State. That's happened before. Yep. But I really think that like from the Big Ten approach, every fan base except Ohio State and I try to explain this to people, and I think you'll have really good insight on it being at the network for as long as you have. The thought process is like, we are not as interested in the national conversation of college football as of what four teams are going to be in the playoffs, what team is going to win the national championship. I think there's only really one team that thinks year in and year out, they have a realistic shot. There's Michigan State can crop up and make it maybe Penn state, Michigan has the talent whenever they put it together, but winning the conference takes so much precedence and there's so much pride. And I think that through that lens, largely, if you emerge to the big 10 as a conference winner and you lose one time, there's a really good chance you're going to be in the playoff. I can say 2015, that's what happened to Michigan state. They had a bad loss at Nebraska, but they figured out their business the rest of the way and they were there. So, I mean, I really feel that like all the focus of covering college football has gone to this one thing. And that's a long-winded question to ask you kind of in your role. How do you think that your audience with the Big Ten Network consumes the sport a little bit differently than people who are getting it from a nationwide lens? Yeah, I, I, I do agree with a lot of what you said, because since the playoff so much of the national focus is on four teams and those four spots. And usually it's what, six, seven teams over the last month and a half or month. That's, that's it. That's all you're talking about is those six, seven teams. Who's going to get in those four spots. And that stinks. Like it, you know, it's a different sport than you can't compare it to the NFL. There are 32 teams in the NFL. There's 129 in the football bowl subdivision. Like it's, it's impossible to your point. You'll never have a perfect system. There's always going to be something like there's just too many teams for it. Right. I mean, you could poke holes in the fact that there are under 500 teams that make the playoffs in the NFL. That's a perfectly valid point more directly to your question. How do do the big 10 fans see it? Like, I agree with you. Like there are one of the great things about college sports, I think, is that it's not all or nothing. Like you can have an amazing year as a fan when you made the final four. You can have, you know, like Northwestern made the round of 32 and not anyone who's a, a fan of basketball that wears purple does not remember every moment of that loss to Gonzaga in the round of 32, four or five years ago, whatever it was like, that's great. That's kind of what's cool about it. You can win the Peach Bowl if you're whatever, Cincinnati. And that can be the goal of, of a, a two-decade run for a fan to look back on. I, I think I kind of think that's cool. I think it used to be great to be, you know, I went to a school that was in the time in the Big 12 in Missouri. And like, man, getting to an Orange Bowl seemed amazing. Now it's just one of the bowls. And I feel like that's a, uh, you know, so if we do expand the playoff to 12, like, 
what happens to the Rose Bowl? Like that's that's a that's a huge thing to Big Ten fans because it dates back to you know 1902 and it's been happening forever. And because it's the San Gabriel Mountains and it's sunshine in the first half and moonlight in the second half and it's Keith Jackson and Brett Musburger, like it's you know it's everything for decades that meant so much on January 1st, and that still is it feels like. Maybe it's dwindling because of the playoff, but that still is, for most fans, I feel like, the ultimate goal. You can get to the Rose Bowl. I mean, that signifies a great year. I do think it's changing because of the playoff, and I think it'll certainly change if the playoff expands to 12 teams because I, I don't know what the Bulls are going to be anymore if we expand to 12. Yeah, I view it as kind of like it's – College sports in a lot of ways has retained the DNA of European sports with relegation of Champions League of different incentive structures in college football that exists with going to a bowl. Uh, a team like Purdue can have a, which who is having a fantastic year right now can celebrate an eight or nine win year Minnesota might get right. to double digits if it plays well. That's a tremendous accomplishment. And I think what's cool and I told you this off air before is that I think what having a network for a manageable amount of purview, 14 teams, you get to understand the players a little bit better, but you're kind of able to like celebrate the successes that aren't the highest of highs. And that's really cool. Do you enjoy being a part of someone's Saturday wind down where they've just coming off a big win and maybe they're not going to the playoff, but they're celebrating a win over a rival? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the the way I like to think of it is if an Illinois beats a Penn State in football, part of, you know, I've been trained to think from the big picture, from the national perspective and all that. But I also think when I'm doing a show after that, like if I'm an Illinois fan, that's the Saturday of my year just happened. Like I want it to feel like we just won uh, a Super Bowl because that was huge for us. And And again, that's kind of what I love about college sports, like there's not a ton of, you know, the Bears beat the Packers. It's like, great, that's that's awesome. And the Packers are a better team, but hey, the Bears beat them. We get it. But it's just different in college sports. And, you know, I was talking to, you know, Jen Latta. She does college game day stuff and everything. I ran to her at, uh, at Big Ten Media Days. And one of the things she said to me, she was like, you know, I'm pretty jealous of of your setup because you've got 14 teams like you can hone in and focus on knowing so much depth about each team as opposed to, you know, she's got to be. And I remember it from my ESPN and ESPNU days. Like I had to know the Boise State kicker. I had to know the Arizona State running back. I had to know the Florida State backup wide receiver. And and you know it all, but it's much more peripheral, whereas you get more storytelling, you get more in depth in, in the Big Ten because, as you said, you're really you're focusing on just those teams. It's okay for me to not know anything about the Boise kicker because I know about the Purdue second string kicker now, which might matter if he gets injured and has to come in to the game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the first time I ever met you, um, I knew that you had one dream job and we had a mutual friend and we were coming over to watch an NBA finals game. And I distinctly recall that I walked <laughs> in and it, it was obviously it must've been June and you were looking at like a depth chart in the other room going <laughs> over like positions for 
Indiana, I like on this depth chart and like practicing pronunciations. And I say that because it kind of like, that was the first moment where I had actually seen someone who was in the industry who was on air and you think, okay, well, their work day starts, you know, when the cameras start rolling, you know, that's your misperception uh, before you you get into it. But I was really struck. I was just like, oh, that doesn't look like a lot of fun. And I hate to say it, you know, I was just like, that doesn't look like a great time, but it was kind of like, oh, you have to do the work in order to do this. And after you won dream job, um, you know, which I want to say Greenberg, John Greenberg of the athletic did a great article. on Yeah. Wasn't that great? One of the things that doesn't get talked about is maybe the backlash that you got for winning. And you've told me that you dove in head first to prove that you were worthy of the honor and wanted to outwork people. Um, What do you remember about those months afterwards when you were looking to establish yourself as a person worthy of, of winning that competition? Well, when it ended, um, it was late March and I had a meeting like two days after the show ended with all the big wigs at ESPN. And I basically said like, can I please go back to college and graduate? And uh, they were like, yeah, go ahead. We'll see you June 1st. So I got to go back and, and get my degree and then started June 1st. And I mean, yeah, it was, it was the good and the bad. And 95% of it was good, which is I skipped five steps in the career, right? You're supposed to get a crummy job, which leads to a slightly better job, which leads to an okay job, which leads to a good job. And then SportsCenter gets you. And mine was boom, straight out of college because of, of the show. The good for that is... I mean, I firmly believe we as people rise to the level around us and that if you are surrounded by people who are as good, if not better than you, that is how you get better. And so to me, I got so much better so quickly because I'm next to Carl Ravitch and I'm doing a show with Neil Everett and I can go to lunch with John Anderson and ask him questions and you don't have that access when you're 22. But to your point, I also knew that I got there the quote unquote wrong way and I wanted to prove it. So my philosophy was I'm 22, I'm single, I have no kids and I have no life. All I want to do is be good at this thing. So I'm going to do everything I can to get better at it. So I was supposed to shadow for a month and like two weeks in, I was like, can I just start working? And so I just started taking people's shifts. They were like, yeah, man, if you want, I'll go home early. And I was like, great. And it was small shifts at first. It was like an ESPN News five-minute update or whatever. But like, I wanted to do that. And they had, this is a while ago. So this is 04. They were launching the Digital Center, which was a big deal back in 2004. And they did a month's worth of rehearsals. Well, Linda Cohn and, you know, Stan Verrett didn't want to stay and do a fake show because they're professionals and they've done hundreds, if not thousands of them. I was desperate to do it. So I tried to sub in whenever I could, like, guys, can I do the fake show? And all you had to do was sit in the chair and read the prompter so they could work on timing and lights and yada, yada. But like, that was really big to me. One of the other things I was like, I want to work every holiday, right? I don't have kids or a wife. Like, so I work Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Like I, I volunteered for it because I, I'm the rookie, right? I had to earn my stripes that way, seeing how I didn't earn them the traditional way. And the only other thing that was weird, and this wasn't many people, but you know, I think I've told the story before of, there was one person who, one person who just openly hated me. He was a co-anchor. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't say my name. He wouldn't talk to me for the six hours you're in a pre-show cubicle sitting next to him 
Um, he wouldn't acknowledge me on air. I mean, it was gen- It was like a sports night episode. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. In hindsight, I'm kind of glad he did that because the stories are incredible and I remember it vividly. And I would like, there was a little smart ass in me. So sometimes I would, you know, I'll make up the name to not say as a real one because I think he might be in the industry somewhere. But if his name was Bill, I'd be like, how about that one, Bill? And I knew he wouldn't acknowledge it. So there'd just be like an awkward silence for a second. I'm like, all right, back we go to the Padres and the Indians. So that was interesting. There was one time that a fairly prominent person uh, at SportsCenter, like, uh, so when I did my first week of SportsCenters, there was someone who, they started airing promos for me in SportsCenters. They said, the SportsCenter with Dream Job winner, Mike Hall is coming here. And so the producer of this one show was giving me a hard time. And I was like, great, I'm all, I'm here for all hard time. I'm the rookie, gimme, gimme. And I took like a bunch of heat. Hey, we're tired of running your promo. I was like, you got it all good. Yep, absolutely. And I let everyone kind of do it. And I kind of waited for the humor and the jokes to die down. I waited like another few seconds. I was like, all right, we're good. And I started walking past the cubicle to go to mime. And this person said, what we ought to do is show a reel of your screw up so people can see what a blanking joke you are. And I was like, I barely even know this person. Also, I've barely had screw up so far. How do you? how are you that upset? And I like had that internal debate of like, do I say something? Cause that was really disrespectful and rude. Or do I shut up and swallow it? Cause you're the rookie and this is what comes with it. And you're not supposed to be here at this age anyways. And so I swallowed it and I didn't say anything. And like the next day was my first sports center. And that person sent me a note the next day and was like, great job. We're all really proud of you. And I was like, okay, whatever. I guess I did the right thing by, you know, not, not having an ego in that moment and not being a tough guy. Well, it takes me back too because it's hard to figure out how to navigate your way in the working world when you're out of college. Um, my situation is obviously much different, but you know, I was rubbing elbows with people who had been in the newsroom for 30 or 40 years, and it's Absolutely. my first real job. You don't know about the pecking order. You are immediately seen as a threat from everybody who's older. And a lot of times, like that ambition that you were talking about is seen as a threat and not an attribute, right? It's not something that's going to make the company better. It's not a person who's going to volunteer to work those holidays. You don't want to work because you'd rather spend them with your family. You're seen as someone who's gunning for my job. So it's really, really hard to figure out how to navigate that world. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody learns from them. But working from the bottom like that and working harder than everybody else and doing those things that you just mentioned, like it gets a bad rap now because a lot of people have to pay dues. They don't have to, they have to, they have to pay dues that they shouldn't have to pay. Right. But if you don't do that when you're young, Trust me, you're not going to want to do it when you get into your 30s. Like that's when you have the energy and that's where you can really decide what you want to do. So I think it was really smart on your account to take the opportunity and run with it and do everything that you could do with it. Because I don't know if someone else had won that show, I don't think I'm sitting here talking to them 15 years later or whatever, and they're still in the industry and they're still really good at it. Well, it's nice of you to say. Thanks. Um, you know, I mentioned John Anderson earlier. So he was my mentor. He went to Mizzou just like me. And, and he always said, he was like, the thing you did that was great was you didn't walk in and act like you own the place and that you were going to reinvent how to do sports center. You came in and were a sponge and asked questions and wanted to get better and had respect for the people. And I was like, 
that's a nice compliment. Thank you. But there's an alternative way. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know how anyone could be 22 and walk into sports center and be like, y'all doing it wrong. <laughs> Follow game show winner. Like, I don't understand how someone could do that to me. That was the golden ticket. The, the Wonka prize that I got was I got to take, you know, Carl Ravage to lunch and buy him uh, a meal so that I could take notes and grill him all day on how he does baseball tonight. And like, that was the whole, that was the real thing that being on air was a was an amazing opportunity at 22 but to me just being there and being able to pick brains and learn from the best of the best like i i don't understand how someone could have had uh an ego to do it but you know that that was i think one of the big concerns that people had was that this would be somebody who's who's like no 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 i'm going to show you how to do this thing one of the most valuable things that i think that i learned from you was one time you told me how difficult it is to be a sideline reporter and how yeah. so much of that work doesn't come over on air. Yep. And so much of that your performance is dictated by the booth, the producer, the director, circumstances beyond your control. What makes that particular role, which you did many times, what makes that such a challenge? So you mentioned there's a lot of behind the scenes politics that you wouldn't think of. So, for example, I did about two or three years of sideline reporting for the NFL on Fox. This was in it. They did this stretch where they had like Aaron Andrews or, or Pam Oliver or something like that. And then if it wasn't their A or their B team, they used other people based on the city. So I did a bunch of Bears games when it was at Soldier Field. And my producer just couldn't care less about a sideline reporter. Like he just he didn't care. He wanted you for the halftime interview and the post-game interview and if there was a major injury, and that's all he wanted. And that's just not how I worked because, like, when I was at ESPN, I would do sidelines for, like, the men's volleyball national championship and the Frozen Four. And, like, there they integrate you a ton, and it's you're, you, you've got to know everything. You've got to be almost as prepared as the play-by-play -play man. But if you're stuck with the producer who's going to turn the volume down and you push the button to talk to him and says, hey, I've got an insight. Like I had this one game where Robbie Gold was coming in to hit like a game winning field goal attempt for the Bears and the field was in terrible condition. And like two minutes before the kick, I was just near him on the side. I was here warming up and I was like, hey, how's the field out there? And he goes, man, this is the worst I've ever seen it. This is going to be a prayer if it goes in. And I was like, pushing the button i'm like you gotta throw to me you got i got something great i got something great and he wouldn't do it and at the after the game i went to him and i was like hey uh i don't mean to be a uh you know confrontational but i had something really good that would have helped the broadcast and would have given insight that our play-by-play -play and analysts couldn't have and he was like oh yeah sorry man i had you you know basically all down to zero volume there was a lot going on in the truck which is not necessarily him being bad at his job because there is a lot that goes on in the truck but when you work with like a great producer, we've got one at the Big Ten or Art Fox, who's a guy, I don't know if you've met him, but you should honestly do stories on him because what he's done, he was the guy when it when the Big Ten was Steve Lavin, Brent Musburger, Aaron Andrews. Like he was the guy with Dockich and Tarico. Uh, I mean, he's got a great history of calling big events with big announcers and he's really good. And like when I'll do sideline reporting for the Big Ten tournament, like sometimes he'll check in with me and be like, hey, Mike, haven't heard from you in eight minutes. Do you got anything? Like he'll reach out to you to do that stuff. So you're kind of at the mercy of the type of producer you have. 
But to your point about the research and, and what I've said, like, I think it's, it's pretty easy to be okay at sideline reporting. It's pretty easy, right? If you just want to be like, ah, do two interviews and I'll be there for an injury update. Like you can do it. it it's not that bad. If you want to be really good, it's incredibly hard because you have to not only know everything, you need to know the injuries, the stories, the history, the all that stuff, because you don't know when, you know, Minnesota is going to be on their fifth string running back who has a hundred yard game. Like that stuff happens and you need to be prepared because you can ask in that post-game interview something about his history that if you didn't know that and you're just given the generic, how did it feel today? Like it just doesn't have the same thing. But the other skill set that's really hard is like, I think Aaron Andrews is as good as there's ever been. And honestly, I think she's taken slings and arrows because how beautiful she is and people focus on that but she has a great ability to get people to open up and that's something uh you know she and i aren't like buddies or anything but we worked together a little bit at espnu and i would like study how good she did at loosening people up and i remember when she would interview tom Izzo on a sideline it's like she would now tom's great with most people but she could get this personality and an interesting story out of him and i remember trying to take that and being like okay i'm not just going to ask the smart question here, but I'm going to try to show, you know, like a great example would be like a Bo Ryan at Wisconsin, who is kind of a tough guy, you know, and he, he didn't like playing nicely necessarily all the time, but I built up a rapport with him where he could be a smart ass to me and back and forth. And so, you know, like I would say to him on a, in a doing a sideline interview, like, Hey, I heard you talking to the uh, official there. What was that about? And he would say something, you know, he, he wanted the truth was he was MFing the guy, but he'd be like, oh, we were, you know, discussing uh, where to get lunch after this. We think we might go out and dine together somewhere. And like, well, that's good TV. You know, it didn't have anything to do with the game, but, but to be able to pull that out of someone is pretty hard to do when the producer's in your ear, the game ends, you've got two or three ideas, but you also want to react to what just happened. And your producer's telling you, we got this video to show. So you got to ask something around this. Like there's a lot that goes into it that, you can tell those who are great versus pretty good because they have that extra talent and they, they do that extra prep beforehand. Must've been the one foul Wisconsin was ever called for uh, <laughs> during his tenure. And so that must've been a rare treat. Bart Fox. I actually have done a story on him. I Did was you? in the truck um, for the big 10 tournament um, in Chicago. Yes. He, I read that. I remember that. And you're exactly right about him being proactive. Now I don't have an, as much experience on game day to know that that might be an outlier, but his demeanor and his calmness, well, like the tempest was going around him yes. was something that was truly amazing. Like, yeah, like you said, it's like, it's planes flying around all the time. It is. Oh yeah. Of like tension. And he was always right on the ball. That's almost the, the most important thing in a producer game or studio. Like I've done, 10 hour signing day shows. I've done a eight hour NFL draft show. We, we, we've done at ESPNU with Pete waters or at the big 10 network with uh, Mark Carmen or Bill Copeless or like when those guys have fires around them and they're smart enough and experienced enough to when they push the button and chime in your ear, no matter what cast is behind them, they're like, okay, guys, let's go to this next. Because when you have a producer who's screaming in your ear and is you know losing their mind and, and they're they're stressing out on everything and they don't know how to calm that down before getting in your ear like it rattles you and i've had a few moments where i had to pull the old earpiece out and let it fly 
because the actual show has to take precedence. Like you don't like those moments, but that's happening because someone's screaming in your ear and, and they don't know what to do it. So when there is a Bart Fox or is there a Pete Waters or somebody like that, who's very calm, that's, it's a real skill. And that's, that's where those people, you know, earn their paychecks. So when you meet a guy like Bo Ryan or Tom Izzo, it got me thinking that you have to manage and establish a rapport with all these different personalities, whether they're coming on whatever show you're hosting during the day, whether you're doing sidelines, whatever the moment might be. And it is super hard to establish that when people don't really want to say anything, you know, they don't want to open up when they're on air. Like that's just a natural ability that 99% of people don't have. They always come to it guarded. So do you have to do the work off air or how do you kind of lose? Like, I know that, I know that you've done a good amount of improv in your life and you're interested in like acting and things like that. So is it just kind of figuring out a way to operate on their level, to find their level, to say yes and? And is that best done far before the interview, if possible? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think everyone has it differently. Like there are reporters in the world, like a Nicole Auerbach is much better at building a relationship away from just strictly her job where she can text a commissioner when something happens and get a response. And like, that's never been my skill set. I've never been great at, at something like that. I work on it, but it's just not something that is naturally good to me. What I think I'm better at is loosening someone up. Honestly, sometimes it's just through dumb self-deprecation. You know what I mean? If it's, if you're doing an interview and you got a two minute commercial break beforehand, if you can just do something to, to set the tone of like, Hey, where I'm not, you know, trying to be 60 minutes here and I don't take myself too seriously. We're going to have a good time. That's, I think that's a large part of it. But I do think to your point too, is you can lay the groundwork when you're, you know, you see a coach before a game, after a game at a media day, if you get to go to a practice, if you get to, you know, one time I got to go to a dinner with Fran McCaffrey and it wasn't the two of us. It was like 30 of us, but I got to sit next to him. And like that laid a lot of groundwork, just one dinner for he and I've had a great relationship for the 12 years or whatever he's been in Iowa. I also think honestly, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but there are certain coaches that I know, like I can't goof off with them. Like Urban Meyer, I did a lot of interviews with him. I think I made him laugh twice, you know, and and at some point I learned like, well, you're just not going to make him laugh, but you want him to respect you. So I always found with someone like an urban, okay, I'm not going to get a ton of personality out of him because he's just, he refuses to let that out or he just doesn't have the personality that he it's there in a way that an Izzo or a, a, a PJ Fleck or something would have. So that I would just be like, okay, then I'm just going to get info. If I, if I can't get personality out of Urban, then I, I learned quickly to stop trying. And I would be like, great, I'm going to ask detailed football XO questions with him because it's better than nothing. And I'd rather get personality from someone. But if I can't, I can at least get something that they feel comfortable talking about. In the last couple of years, you've started doing a few play-by-play games. How difficult was that to start doing in your late 30s? Yeah. So when I was in college, I called radio play-by-play for a high school team. It was kind of a classic, like what you're supposed to do in the industry. I was a, a sophomore at Mizzou and I had a friend of a friend who was calling, or no, I was a freshman and a friend of a friend who was calling the Mexico, Missouri Bulldogs, high school football and uh, basketball games. And 
my friend was like, I bet you can go if you want, like sit with him and see how he does the job. And I reached out and he said, yeah. And then at the end of the first game, I was like, can I come again? And he was like, sure. Actually, you want to keep stats? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. As boring as that is. So I kept stats for two or three games. And he was like, do you want to just read them at halftime? Yes, yes, I do. And then after a month, he was like, why don't you just host the whole halftime? Yes, yes, I do. And then it was, why don't you do play-by-play for the fourth quarter for me? Great, I'll do that. Hey, I'm sick. Can you fill in? And all of a sudden, he graduates. And then the next year, I'm the play-by-play voice because they have nobody else. And so I did football, basketball, and baseball play-by-play for about two and a half years. But A, I was in college. B, nobody was giving me notes. C, nobody was listening. D, it was a high school team. E, I was very, very, very not good. And then dream job happened. I focused so much on studio. I got to ESPNU, focused entirely on studio. I had a boss who said, you should do play-by-play because it'll benefit you. And so I did some some ACC games and I didn't love it. I just, I felt like this never, I never wanted to be Marv Albert. I wanted to be Bob Costas. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be Vince Scully. I wanted to be Dan Patrick. And so studio was where I always wanted to focus. But you know, I'm in my late thirties now and I've been at a national level. This is my 18th year. And I was sort of like, I think I need a new challenge. So it was purely, let's just try something that I haven't done. I don't know if I'm good at it. I don't know if I'll like it but I'd like to challenge myself. And it was overwhelming at first. So in studio, your job is to know the big picture and it is to react to storylines and it's to do an interview here or there. But for the most part, you're supposed to know what were the 10 most important things about the game that just happened? What were the three or four most important things about every other game that could possibly be relevant And what are the major storylines around the teams or the league or the sport? And if you do that, the rest of it is just listening, responding, having personality, et cetera, et cetera. Play by play, like sort of what we were saying about sideline, like you need to know the fifth string running back, or I've only focused on basketball, but like you need to know the 11th player on the roster because A, if it's a blowout, they're going to get playing time. B, if there are injuries, they need to come in. So that's some of the logistics, but the, the deep dive you have to go much more on But also, honestly, Kyle, the logistics was at first was so different because when I do a studio show, I'll make a word document, right? I'll just put, you know, Indiana, Michigan State, and then, you know, dash, 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 every note that is important to me. And it'll be pretty detailed um, because I never know what might come up or what trend might happen, yada, yada. But like I had to learn to make what's called a chart or a board. And it's basically a Microsoft Excel file. And then you shift it and you put more room here for stories and you put more room here for stats and which stats do you want? And you update them and well, this is too little space and I couldn't put it. So I need to have a separate paper. So like at one point when I was calling games, I had my board and I had a storyline sheet and I had a note card for early in the games. And I had a, a large piece of paper for stuff that, and I had like so much stuff that it was just, managing all the information and then you balance the whole when do you tell a story when do you ask your analyst when do you listen to the producer when do you lay out when do you do actual he dribbles baseline shoots you know play by play none of this is something that anybody who's done this hasn't dealt with early on but to your question like it was new for me for the most part and so that was just such a big learning curve now the great thing is I've been lucky enough to have some really good friends from Kevin Kugler to Lisa Byington to uh, Brandon Gauden 
to Tom Hart to back in the day, Mike Tarico, you know, gave me his original initial board. So I was able to reach out to people and, and sort of learn what they did and how they did it and, and find my own rhythm to it. But yeah, I mean, it really was the, the analogy you brought up improv earlier. The analogy I made is it's improv versus standup. So you can be great at improv and be terrible at writing jokes. You can be amazing at writing jokes, but you can't think on your feet. Well, they're both comedy, but they're both cousins. They're just not really brother's. And stand or play by play and studio, they're cousins. Like, I don't know, 40%, maybe 60% of play by play is studio, but it's that other 40 to 60% that is just a total foreign language. They're related, they're just not perfectly synchronized. And to me, it's been a really cool challenge to try to get better in that. And it's it's literally for the first time in a long time, every time I do play by play, I learn something. Uh, new. And I realized I did that bad. I did this good. Do less of that. Do more of this. I was thinking about one of your job responsibilities is providing in-game updates. Go to the uh -huh. studio, see the touchdown in the other game. And that has always fascinated me because there's never been a time I haven't wanted to go to the studio and check out an update. Now, growing up when you didn't have the red zone, you didn't have the internet, you weren't constantly up to date of what was going on around the country. There was nothing more exciting than taking a look at what uh, Steve McNair was doing at Elkhorn. How does that process work? I actually don't know how it works. Who decides when to go to studio, what game to feature, and then yep. how much time do you have to write your whatever time, 15, 20 seconds, whatever. And is that a difficult thing to do? Because it's a famous quote. I would have wrote you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. Have How time. hard is it to get all the facts and maybe some personality into that tight window? How does that whole well, process work? That's a great question because that's an aspect that everyone thinks about in the back of their mind. Everyone knows about updates, but you never really think about it. So it's different at different places. For example, at, um, at ESPN, the way it was told to me was like, updates are there to not only inform the viewer, but to help the game. Like, we not only want to give an update when there's an amazing play or an important storyline developing, but also like if there's an injury and they got nothing to do for three minutes, help them out, give them an update. If there's a, um, you know, if it's a blowout, like help them out, give them an update. Now it's a little different at, um, at Fox and at BTN, like Fox, I feel like with their NFL, they're kind of like, let's go. People want to, we want to keep people on the game, but they also, they have fantasy teams. So if we've gone a quarter and only did, one update that's not good like we need to constantly be throwing to carissa in the studio at the big 10 network it is our philosophy sort of shifted over the years sometimes we're focused on what's the biggest story in the country most of the time it's what's happening in the big 10 for simplicity we'll just focus on the big 10 so let's say there's two games going on at 2 30 one on our air and one on abc i will have the responsibility to be watching the abc game and when there's a big play, usually a score, we have to debate if it's worth bringing in. Because at BTN, we're a little more sensitive towards breaking up the flow of a game. What we don't want is a one-yard touchdown run update. Because it's, just, not to use a cliche word, but it's just not sexy, right? If you can get a 23-yard run where a guy breaks the tackle and moves to the outside, like, well, that's much better video. Let's update with that. If there's a milestone that's met, if it's a last minute score, if there's an upset that happens, like those are the updates you want to have. And either I'll see it or my producer, I have a specific producer for updates. And one of us will say like, 
hey, what do you think of that? And there might be sometimes where I'm like, nah, it's a, it's a three yard touchdown pass. It's it's a no name. The game's a blowout. Let's not waste their time. And sometimes it's it's hey, let's do this. Love it. All right, we're ready. And that's when it gets fascinating. That's when uh, there's another story for you to write one day is how a, a control room in a studio works because we've got a coordinating producer who's in charge of remote, so the games, and he's in the control room talking with remote. So when our update producer says, I got an update, there's a lot of things that could happen. One, he could say like, great. And I'll get into the producer and say, come to Chicago the second you can. Two is he could say, no, we're not doing it. There's an injury. It's the wrong tone. You know, three, he could say, okay, but we're in the red zone and we do not want to miss the snap of what becomes a touchdown. So we could do an update in a different game. Like there's a lot going on. Sometimes, honestly, it's a technical issue. We might have a top 10 upset that just happened. The highlight's ready. We're ready to go. And all of a sudden, it turns out the remote can't hear us. Their audio's out. And we have to wait for them to do a test, which they can't do till they're in a commercial, which they can't do until, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, the immediacy feels gone from the update. And that's what drives me crazy when I'm like, ah, like we want to we want to do it right now. We want to get it right away. But there really is a lot that goes into communication this guy talks to that guy who talks to producer he's waiting to do it and usually i'll get it it'll it'll be something in my ear of like okay stand by mike should be any play now and then you wait sometimes it's right away sometimes it's two or three plays later and i just got to listen for kevin coogler brandon gauden whomever to go lisa buying to let's go to the studio for an aflac update or whatever whatever it is and you're right to the last thing you said is that i got like 10 seconds so I want to set the scene. I want to say in East Lansing, Michigan State taking on Penn State. But okay, there's three seconds. And then I got to say what happened. You know, Jahan Dotson with a 15-yard touchdown catch to tie the game. And then you're in that weird space where I do want to put personality in. Like, I think our best moments are when I throw to a Lisa, Brandon, Kevin with something funny and they respond or vice versa. Like, I think those moments are great TV. But also you can't force it. And so I usually err on the side of if I got a lot to say, like, it's not about me. So save something funny for another day. Just get the moment in and move on. Because a lot of times too, Kyle, like sometimes the snap will come sooner than they think. And so the video shrinks and all of a sudden I've got to shut up and just be like, oh, they're up by four. You go out of your way to credit people for helping you. And a lot of the names that you mentioned are really big names. Uh, and I have found that a lot of times the most successful people, the people you would think never have time for you or care about you or want to pay it forward, they're the best to deal with. Yeah. And the people who are just barely hanging on or in the middle, they're the rudest. It's a really weird thing. And I was curious if you have, A, noticed that phenomenon and B, you know, if you wanted to talk um, a little bit more about some people who went well out of their way to help you when they had so much going on. Totally. Um, you know, on, so I do a podcast on the bench with my call and I had Carissa Thompson on and, uh, and she did extra for a few years. And she was telling me, she was like Denzel Washington, Tom Hanks, like Adele, the bigger they are, the nicer they are. It's the real housewives who treat you like crap. She was like, it's amazing. The more successful and famous and talented someone in Hollywood is, the kinder they are to you. And the people who are D and E-list celebrities are the ones who have huge egos and need red M&Ms only and like yada, yada. And I found a lot of that to be true. I mean, some of the people who stick out would be um, Sean McDonough has been 
a, a lovely man, a, a genuinely kind person um, in terms of being helpful and just being a friend. You know, uh, John Anderson uh, had no reason to be nice to me except we went to the same college and he was a mentor, even though I never asked him, I just decided for him, you're my mentor, deal with it. People at ESPN, I would say at ESPN, 10% uh, of the people were out of their way nice to me. 10% of the people were out of their way mean to me and 80% were like, whatever. Like if you're kind and hardworking, great. And if you're a jerk, then okay. But like they would, I was just at uh, ground level with them, which is great, right? I mean, I think that's all you really want is just, just to not be behind the eight ball uh, in anything. But yeah, there were a lot of, you know, there's a lot of behind the scenes people who were kind to me. But in terms of on airs, I mean, you know, Matt Weiner was really nice. Linda Cohn was really nice. I mean, the, the obvious one, I don't want to bring up because I could go on for 10 minutes about him, but Stuart Scott was unbelievable. I mean, the other day I was flipping through some old emails and I found this email from back in 04 when I was about to come to Bristol. And it was like just this flood of information from him of just, I'm proud of you for this. You're going to be great at that. If you need anything, call me for this. Make sure you look out for that. I mean, he was so great. Trey Wingo was really, did I ever tell you my Wingo story? I got time. So we, uh, Dream Job ends and it's before I started ESPN. So it's like April or May of 04. And ESPN says, we're doing this convention in New Orleans where we're going to have you and some ESPN people interview famous athletes. It's for advertisers and yada, yada. Can you do it? And I was like, sure. So I flew out there and the first person I met was Trey Wingo. And we had to interview Dr. J, Tom Brady, and uh, uh, Jerry Stackhouse. And I think... Uh, yeah. So that's me with Trey and Tom Brady. Um, and well, look at that. Uh, now that now the listener can't can't see this, but he is wearing a, a suit that looks uh, like he's Nathan Fielder uh, <laughs> swimming in it, but he looks cool. Swimming in it for sure. Didn't know how to dress. Um, but anyway, so Wingo um, meets me and gives a handshake. And I sort of just very quickly say like, hey, hey, it's a real honor to meet you. And I didn't tell him this, but I was also like, I'm more excited to meet you than Dr. J or Tom Brady, um, because I was. And I was like, I, I watched you for a long time. I really, it's really cool for me to meet you. Five minutes after us chatting, he pulls me aside and he goes, listen, kid, I really wanted to hate you. I really wanted to hate you, but I can't do it. I think you're really nice. Um, I got your back. Anyone gives you a hard time in Bristol, you come right to me, you understand me? Like that's all it took was just meeting me and all of a sudden he was like, I got your back. And so he was really good to me from day one. I could go on. There, there, there were plenty of people who didn't have to be nice, but, but definitely were. So you're in the middle of your second season of On the Bench, the podcast you do for Big Ten Network. What's it been like to tap into a new skill set? Because while everybody has a podcast, everybody has to figure out the way they want to do it. That was another thing that the reason I, I asked the network to do it was because I wanted to challenge myself because I'm used to giving five minute interviews or taking asking questions for five minutes and getting five minutes of answers because that's what we do on TV. And there are so many stories that have nothing to do with anything topical that I wanted to get at that you can't do in a studio TV show. And like you said, it's nothing new. Everybody has a podcast. But, but I also remember... I think I reached out to you and said, what did you learn from doing a podcast? And you were like, don't do it for anybody else because it's probably not going to make money and it's probably not going to get millions of ears. So just do it because you're interested in the content. So I've tried to focus on that. 
when I do a studio interview, I write out the questions because I learned at ESPN from a guy named John Sawatsky, who was like this very Sawatsky strict. School. Yes. And I, I bought it hook, line and sinker. You know, it's not about you. It's about the person. How do you draw them out? And you know, yada, yada. And like the podcast is different because as you've done here, like it's supposed to be a conversation. You're supposed to give your thoughts as well. And I'm not comfortable with that, but I also, I'm used to writing things out word for word so that I know the exact phrasing. And you can do that when you have a five minute interview because you have six questions. But if you're gonna do a 30 minute, you're gonna have, I don't know, 18 questions, 22. And so you don't wanna be reading all that. So I'm, I'm trying to get better on getting ideas on my note sheet instead of a full question. That's sort of an inside the weeds uh, answer for it. But it is, it is cool to get some longer stories and some fun moments out of people that you didn't. Like we've had on like Jahan Dotson. Jahan Dotson had like a great personality. Andre Curbelo was super fun. Um, Brad Davison's a really interesting. Like these are actual athletes that you don't get in five minutes that you can get a sense of their personality, as you well know, and anyone who does podcasts know. But for me, it was my first time really trying to get to to, to see that new layer that, that a long form interview can do. All right. That's been a good hour with Mike Hall of the big 10 network. Thanks so much for talking about the old days and the current days for putting up with uh, all my nonsense. And uh, I'm going to start texting you things to try to work into your updates as a little Easter egg that only I can enjoy. I'm a hundred percent on board with that. And I do want to apologize for looking over an Indiana football roster 11 years ago, because that sounds really obnoxious. Uh, if I had guests over in June, um, by the way, as for the, the thing you just said about like putting in an Easter egg. So that was something Trey Wingo taught me too. When I was early at ESPN, he was going to do an update on ESPN news. He was like, give me a word. And I was like, what? He was like, just give me a word and then watch my update. And I was like, okay, uh, foot. He was like, that's dumb. And he walks into the studio and his first update, he goes like, back on ESPN news, Trey Wingo here. Let's check out uh, the latest information from Detroit. Barry Sanders, who has 1,200 yards this year on foot, <laughs> is able to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if you're watching at home, you didn't realize – he was doing a dumb bit to make one guy laugh because it just felt like, yeah, he's running with his feet on foot. So I will do that sometimes. I will, I will, if, you know, Kevin Kugler or something is texting me and he'll be like, banana. I'm like, got it. Yep. All right. I'll see if I can squeeze in banana in an update. The things we do to keep ourselves entertained. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Real dumb. You bet, man.